0: Hello, and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. I'm one of your hosts, Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side. And
1: I'm the other guy,
0: David the Skeptic. Awesome, and today we have a special guest lined up for you guys. Um, Anthony Magnabosco from Sweet Epistemology. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Hey, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Yeah, I I wanted to... I reached out to Anthony myself because I... I am a fan of, of his approach, of his street epistemology uh, approach of, of getting out and, and dealing with people. But um, rather than have me explain what what he's about, to, who he is, and, and what street epistemology is, um, yeah, why, why don't we turn it over to you, Anthony, and give us sort of a brief description of, uh, on your front? Well, for sure.
2: And uh, thank you so much for having me on, Dale and David. I really appreciate it mm-hmm. to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is street epistemology, and the definition varies. We have three or four of them on the streetepistemology.com website. But in a nutshell, I suppose my elevator description slash pitch for it is that street epistemology is where you use questions to respectfully challenge a person's claim that they tend to make because they think that it's true. We like to explore what it is they think that it's true, why they think it's true, what are those reasons, and then how do they use, how do they conclude that those reasons are warrant the confidence that they might have in the belief, in the claim. And it's not debating, it's not arguing, it's respectfully listening, and yet asking probing questions to keep driving down to that foundation to see if their level of confidence is justified. And I've been going out for six years or so. I've had more than a thousand conversations with complete strangers and even family and friends using this approach, And it does seem to help people not only reflect on their belief, but to oftentimes lower their confidence in the claim and, in some instances, completely abandon the view outright.
1: So if I can... uh just drop in a question here and before you're done with your description I want I want to make sure that you plug uh, anything that you might be working on special we're gonna be dropping some links in the show notes and all but uh, definitely take the time to plug your projects but just before you you leave that point uh, just looking at your Twitter profile you've got a, uh, a great motto I guess I would call it a motto I like it um, skeptic humanist secular atheist and then you start with the, the part that I consider the motto, imparting the gift of doubt, Uh, you're going to say, I help people discover and discard beliefs that are likely untrue. Question. So when you go in uh, for a conversation uh, doing your street epistemology, uh, obviously we don't see what happens before you turn on the camera, but uh, do do people understand that that's your going in position uh, before you start talking to them?
2: I do try to be pretty upfront with folks, um, transparent, I think is the word that I'm looking for, with uh, with people who agree to speak with me. I do try to explain that I'm doing street epistemology or at least attempting it. And I want to ask some challenging questions. I want to drive to the foundation of what it is and why and how they determine that what they think is true is really true. And uh, yeah, I do try to explain very clearly what's going to happen so that they can consent to it. Okay, so they, um, but
1: they know the, your orientation that you're a skeptic and an atheist.
2: Um, I don't normally, no, I don't normally just lead with that and say, hey, my name is Anthony. I'm an atheist and I'm here to question you about your God belief. Because number one, they may not even want to talk about that topic. Um, and number two, when you're using street epistemology, I suppose your position on it is not all that relevant. Uh, it, it can be a conversation. And yet, Disclosing too much to a person, I think, could actually result in a person becoming a little bit too defensive and guarded. But it's not like I'm hiding my atheism. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'll I, gladly declare my lack of a belief or my belief that there are no gods to anybody. Um, however, overwhelming a person at the outset can really be problematic. So I, I try to give as much information that a person probably needs in order to participate in the conversation but not to the point where they're just overwhelmed with like oh you've just given me 20 things to think about here and now you want me to explore a belief so there's there's sort of a maybe an art to yeah how you introduce what you're attempting to do to the point where you're being informative but not overwhelmed
1: well i I appreciate you clarifying that uh for me in particular because i've watched a lot of these videos and i I think the only thing that I would probably do differently myself on that score uh, would be, uh, you know, before picking a topic or, or going further with the, the Socratic method that you use would just be to say, and just so you know, um, I'm a skeptic and I tend to uh, not um, accept things uh, that are along the, the supernatural. I tend to be a uh, mm. secular humanist and just, and, and just give that as... A piece of information so that we we understand going in who we both are because you get to know who they are because they're going to mm-hmm. pick a topic and tell you that. And they might answer the question differently or think of the question, question differently if they just have the most basic information about uh, your – your likely position going into but I, I
2: that's that's me oh that's a good point point. And, and I've experimented with all sorts of approaches where I where I lead with that mm-hmm. and I I say hey my name is Anthony and I'm doing these conversations and they want to talk about God and I say well that's interesting I don't think gods are real but we can get into that to let's say mid-conversation they begin to wonder where I stand on the claim and then I offer my position or maybe I'll even say if it's okay with you, how about, you know, after the conversation's over or I don't know when the timer beeps, then we can shift gears and you can ask me any questions you want. So I've experimented with a wide variety of these, of these approaches. And I'm open to suggestions. I get this a lot. A lot of people on, on YouTube, for example, will comment and say, you know, you really should disclose your stance on this from the outset. And, and then I sort of ask for like a sample, scripts maybe like okay if you were to actually write out exactly what you want me to say what would you write down i never get a response yeah <laughs> but it does it doesn't stop me from experimenting with it and well, what's interesting too I, just, is I
1: just gave you mine so you could, you did, you could with that
2: yeah so. I'll, I'll jot that down or i'll listen to it later, <laughs> later but um there have been instances where i for some reason do disclose my stance early on and a variety of things can happen um Number one, there's no noticeable difference in their stance or their, like their, their, when I say stance, I mean like their physical stance. Right. Like they, they don't seem phased at all by it. Other times they become guarded mm-hmm. and other times they open up even more, yeah. which is really interesting because I might talk to someone on campus and lead with my lack of belief or my belief that there are no gods. And they become physically relaxed mm-hmm. because they're, they may have thought, oh, this guy's going to... Evangelized me or proselytized, so. But here's here's the main point: is that my disclosing my stance, whether they agree, disagree, or, or or ambivalent, could potentially influence them. And I don't want to influence them. I'm trying to stay as neutral as possible. So it's not like I'm holding back. In the instances where you see me holding back on my my view, perhaps it's not because I'm trying to. Uh, what's the word I'm? I'm not. I'm not trying to like hide anything from them about my, my position. I'm loud and proud as an atheist. I'll tell anyone that people don't even ask sometimes, and I'll be glad to tell them. But I'm not trying to influence them, and I think that's the important goal.
0: Gotcha. Uh, one one quick follow-up uh, from on my end, because so I understand the the goal. I I fully support the goal actually of, of street epistemology, whether you're atheist, Christian, and that sort of thing. Um, so so really, your Use of the Socratic method is, is to get people to think through their beliefs and, and understand their warrant um, for why they believe what they do. So I was just asking, so ha- have you ever encountered someone, say, you know, a Christian or something like that, who who, after talking with you has uh, really thought about their belief and they've gotten back to you? And they said, actually, they, they hold more confidence mm-hmm. in that belief as a result of thinking through it, and, and if that's happened, do you, do you consider that a success? You know, you're, you're getting people to think through
2: these things? Sure, good yeah. question. But So I think the question is something like, have you ever run into somebody like a Christian or somebody else who you've had a really good conversation with them, they go away, and then they you end up running into them again. They admit, or they reveal that they've been thinking about the conversation, and yet they report a higher confidence. Yeah. That, that's happened once. So here, here's, that, that's like, there's like three things in there, right? Like I had a conversation, they reported that they thought about it, and then they reported a higher confidence level. Right. And then, now, and then the
1: other part of that is, would you consider that a success? Right, right.
2: I think a success in street epistemology is when somebody displays or reports that your questions have got them thinking. Mm. So whether they... Now, if, if you were to ask me five years ago when I first started going and doing this, I would say, well, no, if, if they've increased their confidence on something that's probably not true, then maybe that's, that's, a, that's not as a, as a success as maybe something else. But, no, I, I think the, if they've honestly reflected on the questions and researched their reasons and they kicked the tires on their own beliefs, regardless of how they ended up coming out on that, where they said, oh, I think my, my beliefs are even stronger now. I don't know if I would really look at that as a failure. Uh, plus also, right, they're coming back to me, whether it, was, whether it was sort of a serendipitous thing or it was a planned meeting or whatever. Uh, the idea that somebody's willing to come back to talk to you to report that your conversation impacted them in some way I think is a success. Now, would I be a little dismayed if they, hard, if they hardened their view on a belief that's probably not true? I think I would it would probably embolden me to want to have another conversation to say, well, now that's really fascinating. What additional reasons have you discovered here? Because maybe there is a good reason for it. And then that could probably lead into a whole nother secondary session of questioning where we can, we can explore the new reasons or the newly uncovered uh, justifications for being more confident that it's true. So you you state in your videos that you want to
1: do three conversations with a person, that that's your goal.
2: Lately I've been doing that. Lately I've been specifically going out to have multiple conversations with the same people. How, how has that worked out? How many, how many times have you been able to actually do that? It's been spotty, so I've, I've, uh, I've, I'm auditing a class at a local university because I wanted to talk to some university students again. I, I initially started out talking to folks in, in, on campuses, then I started talking to older people on a trail, now I'm back at the university, and rather than having one-off conversations that are interesting but can be frustrating because you're wondering whatever happened to that person, I'm intentionally trying to get multiple conversations with the same people, and it's kind of mixed only because I, I, I guess I'm not getting as many repeat conversations as I would like, and it's more than likely because I'm not physically there as much as I need to be in order to make that happen. So I'm a stay-at-home dad. I'm really wrapped up in, the, in, in this street epistemology thing. It's consuming a lot of my time, and the amount of time that I have to go out to do interviews is getting smaller and smaller. Now, I have had multiple conversations. I had a secondary conversation yesterday that was amazing. I cannot wait to upload the first and second talk, and I think there's a really good chance we'll have a third one in the next two weeks before the semester ends. But it happens, but it's not happening as enough, as often as I would really like it to be. When it does happen, what's the result? It's fantastic. So what's really fascinating is for, for first talks, I flagged down a stranger. We we, asked, we explored some we the some deeply held belief usually ended on a good note. And I give them a little one of three-part gift that joins together and as a reminder uh, of the talk. And then maybe they can come back for the second and third. So what happens is usually the person, the student is just walking by. They see that I'm out there. Maybe I'm not talking to somebody at the time. And they actively come up to talk to me. Now, it's conceivable that some people have had a first talk. And they do not want to have a second talk and never hear from them again. That's certainly possible. So I can only talk about the times when people do come up to me again. I happen to spot them, wave, smile, and they
0: usually walk over the me. Excellent. Um, and do you have maybe a couple, uh, going on to the next part, Like, do, do you have maybe uh, one or two specific examples that you think are particularly good that you'd like to, to describe You know, the conversation or what happened? Mm.
2: Yeah, I've had a number of conversations. I think I created a playlist on my YouTube channel called something like Repeat Encounters, so you don't have to hunt uh, too much for those. But I had a conversation with a woman who was 82% sure karma was real, and then she lowered her confidence during the conversation. She came back 30 minutes later. We resumed the talk, and she was uh, she lowered her confidence even more and started discussing what her life would be like about it. I've had many conversations with, with God believers where They came back either that same semester or maybe they've emailed me afterwards to say, my views have completely changed largely because of that first conversation that we had. You got started on a journey of questioning, of exploration, and I realized that I could no longer have this view. So um, there are examples out there, but there's there's not as many cradle to grave, so to speak, conversations as I would like. And that's what prompted me to go out to try to make three
0: of them happen. Gotcha. And one thing I, I really wanted to ask you about as well is is um, your thoughts on some of the conversations that were bad, that that didn't turn out like you want. So I, I in researching it, I think it was his name was Troy. I, I think is one of the ones that you're sort of ashamed ashamed of. And this was one of your earlier talks and that sort of thing. But the reason I, I wanted to get your take on on why this went wrong and, and the approach is some of the skeptics of our, our audience. There's a bit of a divide on how to deal with me and some of my opinions. Some some people advocate for this, no, you've got to be an aggressive atheist, That you need to socially shame these people for their opinions and that sort of thing, whereas you are decidedly not. You, you describe your approach as a partnership and trying to avoid the, the backfire effect and that sort of thing. So I, I was just wondering if you could maybe address that, some of the conversations that went bad, why they went bad, and why you should avoid those things
2: and that sort mm-hmm. of Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good question. There's a lot of layers to it. So I'm gonna, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to touch on all of them to some degree. So yes, when I first started going out, I went downtown to to engage with the street preachers. And it was sort of at the tail end of my angry atheist phase and the beginning of my, oh, wow, maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a more effective way to engage with folks on these sensitive topics. So when I first went out and you, you meet these street preachers and they're there to preach, not, in, not really have deep, reflectful conversations. So I think that was my first mistake. It was the venue and the, the demographic that I chose to begin with. But yeah, I ended, up, I ended up sort of just walking right up to him as he was street preaching and getting in his face and just engaging with him. And, and I was being rude. I was interrupting him. I was embarrassing him and then I I filmed him. I don't even think I asked him for his permission to record. I mean, I was doing everything that I would never do today. I I can't envision going out and doing what I did back then. And it resulted in really harming that relationship. I went back several weeks, uh, weekends in a row to talk with him and other street preachers too. There were a good 10 of them in that area. So I was bouncing back and forth between all these street preachers. I really made a name for myself, but I don't think it was a good name. Um, Many of them didn't want to talk to me. Many of them were just, they didn't want to really examine their view. They wanted to preach to me. They wanted to fix the this atheist that was in front of them. So that was really problematic. And it, it escalated to the point where I, I approached him one time and he just started pushing me. He just wanted me to get out of his face. So it, it started to become physical. And when that happens, you start to really rethink, what am I trying to do here? What, what am I hoping to achieve? And that's... You know, that there were some really sobering moments there, I suppose, during that time where I was really reflecting on my objectives and what I was hoping to get out of all this and how, how am I how am I gonna help anybody if I try that approach? So that's when I shifted gears and started talking to other people and, and listening a lot more, asking more questions and holding back on my my views and even resisting the temptation to correct people if they said something that was mistaken. It was like a complete 180 from what I was
1: Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Were you, were you a Christian uh, before and you left the faith?
2: Now, this is debatable because I was raised Catholic. And when I tell Christians this, a lot of them, they, they knowingly nod their heads and smile, wistfully like, ah, that's so cute. He thought he was a Christian. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was a Christian. I, I was raised in a Catholic household. Although at a very young age, I doubted. I didn't think it was real. I thought it was made up. I thought all the parents were pretending and I told my parents this and being the oldest of of four kids, uh, my parents were a little worried about that and what influence that might have on on my siblings. So, so um, they sat me down with a priest and a nun. I expressed my, my skepticism and they went on for like 30 minutes to explain how this is true and it's not made up. And I just went through the motions and pretended. But at a young age, I, I guess, I, yeah, I, I would say I was a Christian, but I always wondered about it. I always doubted. It. I didn't really buy to it. So in Catholicism, there's something
1: called confirmation. Um, did mm-hmm. you go through confirmation?
2: That's a funny story, actually, because I did. I went through confirmation. I went for through First Communion. And for those that don't know, confirmation is where the church feels like you're old enough to make this determination, to make a public statement, an affirmation of belief. And the classes that we had to take leading up to it were very clear. Don't get confirmed if you don't think that this is true. If you're not willing to confirm confirm your views, don't get confirmed and i told my parents this and they and I, I actually had a conversation with my mom about this a while back she felt terrible but she said just go ahead and do it because if you don't get confirmed then you can't get married in the church so i went through the confirmation i was in 8th grade I, you know, I i was just going with the flow i didn't but here's the thing like i don't i don't have i have any hard feelings for my parents for making me go through it or anything like that because i don't think it it doesn't you know i don't think it's real so it's not like I'm upset that I got confirmed in the Catholic Church because it's it's it has no meaning to me. Okay. You,
0: uh, just out of curiosity, um what what were some of the things that you were doubting or or what was the factors that caused you to eventually leave and, and become an agnostic atheist?
2: I don't know. It's not like I was molested by a priest or or Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of... Think, you you oh, won the happened.
1: lottery, apparently,
2: because... <laughs> what happened to you? It, a lot of people think, you know, what happened to you to bring you to your atheism? I was just always skeptical. I mean, I remember being in my room. What did I do? Like, I, I was thinking, well, if God is always watching you, Could he? could he see me holding up my middle finger? And I remember hiding behind a dresser and, like, cowering. I don't know if I had a blanket or not, but I was, like, cowering. Underneath this, like dresser and stuff, and and quickly flipping up the bird, and then just like looking around to see what would happen. Like, <laughs> would, would God punish me for doing that? Like nothing's happening. I don't know if that was a crude attempt to test whether or not there was a God or not. But I was just always kind of a skeptical kid. So there wasn't a traumatic event. It wasn't like you know a close family member died. And, well, how could God do this to me? Curses! It wasn't anything like that. It was just I just don't think that this is true.
1: Gotcha. So you okay. never really believed it. So it's not so much that you lost faith in something that you believed in.
2: I think I did believe it at a young age. Like I, I, I remember going through first communion and praying and looking up at the, the Jesus on the cross and just marveling at at uh, how terrible that must have been. And and He's the Son of God. And he was born in a manger and all this stuff. So I think I did believe the claims to to a certain extent. But maybe by fourth or fifth grade. Um, there was one incident that maybe is worth mentioning. I don't know if you want to get into how, how far we want to get yes. into this. Do you want to? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I... I remember being in fourth or fifth grade, and a, and, a, and a priest came in. Normally, the priest didn't come into the classrooms, but he came up to the front of the classroom to explain how the Bible clearly states that men and women, boys and girls, are different, and that girls, in essence, should be subservient to the men. And I remember all the kids looking around at each other. Boy, it was mixed class of boys and girls. And we were like, just incredulous. It most, at least I was, maybe I I was projecting it on them. I was like, that just doesn't sound right. And then I remember going out on the playground and up to this point, all the boys and girls played together. But for a week afterwards, the boys were on one side, the girls were on the other. There was a physical division in our class because of the message that he, he gave to us. And and I was just thinking, this is ridiculous. This is not, this is harmful. This is divisive. Even at a young age, I can see it. And and I thought, this is just, I don't know if this could be true.
1: Well, hey. good on you. So I, I did have one follow-up question. The reason I was asking some of those background questions is I was trying to get a sense in my own mind what uh, what led you on the path to street epistemology? I mean, what mm-hmm. what made you decide one day? Well, I'm going to have to challenge people's beliefs or make them challenge their own beliefs. I mean, what? Yeah.
2: What, well, I read the book, uh, Manual for Creating Atheists. It was I was at a Freedom from Religion convention in Portland, Oregon, and the author Peter Pagosian was there speaking. I think they needed to fill a slot for a speaker, and he happened to be local, and they brought him in. And I bought his book, and I think I was reading it on the airplane heading home. Thinking, wow, this could profoundly change the dialogues that I'm having with my family, and friends. Because up to that point, I was arguing with them, I was giving them evidence, ridicule, and driving them further away from me. So I was really excited about this potential new approach. And, uh, you know, I kind of fumbled at going out at, at first and engaging with the street preachers. I was still stuck in my old assertive. Uh, antagonistic ways is maybe the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Why did I decide to go out, court it, do all that? Like, I, I guess at some point I started seeing the content that people were putting out there. There was a guy named Ted the Atheist who would go out and just walk up with a camera and engage with people in a very antagonistic way. I was like, well, that's interesting. And then I would watch the Atheist experience and see other, not a lot. There weren't a lot of video examples of Atheists and Theists engaging with each other online other than debates which have their place and maybe we can get into that but mm-hmm. i thought well i want to do something maybe i'll start a podcast maybe i'll do something like and then I, as i was reading bogosian's book i was noticing that there were no video examples of these purported more effective dialogues that he was saying in this book so i set up to do it and that's what prompted me to go out and start reading. out
0: of um curiosity um, have, have you yourself uh, since starting up Street Epistemology, have, have you come across anyone who's, who's told you something in, in a conversation that's made you rethink your own beliefs or your own opinions or, or caused you to want to research into something at all?
2: Yeah, uh, I used to be a pretty firm anti-gun person. Oh, like in, in Texas here, it's, I think it's now legal to open carry. Well, three or four years ago, this was being debated. And there was a local group of people who would go around to the various cities and have these little rallies to advocate for open carry. And they'd stroll down the street with their, with their pistols and rifles and semi-automatic AR-47s, AR-15s. I don't even know the weapon types. But, and I thought, oh, gosh, this is just horrible. This is not safe. And I started engaging with them. Now, I was still borderline aggressive with them. And I was tra- but I was transitioning more to my more Socratic street epistemology approach, and I started listening to what they had to say and, and the justifications for carrying weapons, and it did sway me somewhat. I, I think I'm more open today on the idea of open carry than I was maybe two or three years ago. That's one example. Perfect. Okay. Interesting. Okay. What, just right. just follow up to a follow-up, what, what swayed you? I think the thing that swayed me the most was the idea that uh, the response time of an individual who is caring and, and hopefully has the proper training and wherewithal to respond to, a, to an active shooter would probably save lives rather than waiting three or four minutes for, for trained law enforcement to show up. But um, if you were to ask me my confidence on that, I'd say I may be like at a 60 percent now rather than like a four where, or maybe I was before. So, I'm not all, all the way at a hundred. In fact, I've been experimenting now. Where I'm, I'm not so much talking about God. I, I ask people to pick the topic, and I've been exploring more broader subjects. And there is a video on my channel where we talk, we talk about guns. Uh, that might be a fun, yeah. a fun video for your viewers to watch if they, if they have
1: time. Yeah, I've, I've seen uh, at least uh, one of those. It, it was an amiable. Uh, conversation. I couldn't exactly tell where you were, but it seemed at the time that you were not so uh, in favor of it, and you weren't particularly impressed with the uh, response time um, mm-hmm. argument. Uh, argument at the time. So, um, so that that's interesting. In case some of uh, our uh, listeners have seen the same stuff, that's that's interesting. Maybe off the air, <laughs> we can have a mini discussion about that. Um, I'm probably where you were uh, when you started uh, thinking about uh, gun control, and I certainly am um, sympathetic to the response time argument. But I think uh, what I would like to see is a broader program for deputizing citizens Mm. as opposed to just saying, "Okay, so everybody get a gun, and then we can cut down the response time. What you're saying then, if you're saying, well, people need to be trained and have guns so that we can cut down response times, so that until the official people can get there, maybe that just what you're describing is a deputization system. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would still be law enforcement, and you wouldn't need, you know, you know, all citizens to carry guns and open mm-hmm. carry. So I, I think that that would be a more sane response mm-hmm. uh, to that. So yes, where these the response time argument is appropriate there are better ways to handle response
2: there may be better solutions to to the to the rapid response type of uh, solution yeah yeah
1: yeah i mean we, everybody doesn't you know drive a fire truck and carry a you know 500 foot hose <laughs> right. <laughs> right there's there's a reason we don't do that <laughs> so all right very well, very well said
0: um, all right cool all right so so, uh, just this will be the last section of our, our of uh, part one our interview section and I want to turn it over to David here because um, I, I'm a fan of Anthony's approach I, I actually agree with it I think it's a, a good Avenue to to um, you know reach out to people and that sort of thing my partner doesn't actually necessarily agree with Anthony's approach so so yeah David I'll, I'll turn it over to you to sort of probe uh, why you think Anthony's approach is the wrong way to
1: to to do it. Okay. Well, I will not be using the Socratic method. Uh, so, um, I've I've never actually been a big fan of the Socratic method. I I get it. I understand why people do it. I can I can see where it can be effective. But just as a, a teaching method, it's never been uh, my uh, favorite way to go about it. But that, that said, um. Street epistemology, uh, I, do, I don't use that term unless I'm talking to someone who is doing this specifically. I think of it as just atheist evangelism or, or just evangelism. Um, and I get that what you're doing is more than just, you know, talking to Christians about the, the God discussion. But it's still evangelism, it seems, by any other name. And so what I have against uh, the method ultimately is I have a deep-seated uh, dislike for evangelism. Period, and so it doesn't get better for me just because it's an atheist doing it, as opposed to a Christian doing it. And so mm-hmm. th- there is there is this sense of when you, when you go out and approach someone with with an idea, you're trying to get them to move to your idea. There's some there's some things that you think that you have to kind of think in advance. So in the case of a Christian, you assume that the people that you're talking to are sinners in need of a savior. Otherwise, you would not need to go out and do it. Uh, and if you're an atheist, uh, you're thinking, well, you know, these people have bad ideas, and they're in need of someone to, you know, make them think twice about their ideas. And so Tell me about your presumptions going in and convince me that I'm wrong, because I I think that that presumption is just as wrong as the ones that Christians use that that send them out to go go save people's souls.
2: Why, Mm -hmm. Why am I wrong? Let me first start by saying I can completely understand why it may seem like we're evangelizing for atheism the book that started this is called a manual for creating atheists. That is the book that I read that prompted me to go out to start talking to people. However, one of the best ways to become proficient at street epistemology, I think is try your best to set aside your own view and changing a person's mind. If you can set that aside and honestly explore a person's claim, with them and back off. So where I I think the you're doing evangelism argument fails is, and I don't know how many video examples you've watched of mine or other people, but one thing that I think will become really apparent, watch five videos of somebody evangelizing for Jesus on the street corner, and then watch five videos of somebody doing street epistemology. And the biggest difference I think you'll notice is that we are not telling anybody what they should be thinking. We don't help a person discover that they don't have a good reason for thinking something is true and that their method for concluding that reason is good is unreliable. And then say, okay, now that we've come to this realization, would you be interested in joining a meetup with atheists here in town? Can I give you a copy of the God delusion? Um, Usually that's where it ends. We tend to leave people alone with their thoughts so that they can go out and find the answers themselves. We don't give people the answers. We want to hear their reasons for thinking that something is true. And that, I think, is the biggest difference. And then I should probably just add, the biggest examples of epistemology are people on the street in, initiating talks with strangers about their deeply held beliefs, and oftentimes God is the top. So I understand how it might seem like that's the case. The great majority of people who practice street epistemology will usually wait for it to organically come up and it's not always about. So I think there's, um, I guess what, I, I guess in summary. I can understand why people might get that impression and you could probably use street epistemology to bring a person to the realization that they don't have good reasons and then you could insert, your sales pitch or whatever, right? Like, okay, now that we've decided that uh, Hare Krishna is not really—you uh, don't have any good reason to think that that's true. Would you be willing to fill in the blank? Come to my church, come to a Houston Oasis a meeting where it's like Sunday assembly, but for atheists or whatever. I suppose you could do that, but that's where I think then things—and it's no longer street epistemology—and now is actually trying to push. Oh, yeah.
1: Okay, um, so I can accept all of that, but it's, there still seems to be a going in a, a zump, assumption, a foundational assumption when you're doing street epistemology. So let's just narrow the topic to religion for the moment, sure. Uh, and, and I recognize that it, it goes beyond that, but it's easy to talk about religion. The skeptics and seekers, after all. So um, that said, um, it seems like the uh, the presuppositional assumption is that if you're talking to a Christian, they have bad reasons. Mm-hmm. And so you need to expose the bad reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once again, even no matter how the conversation goes, it gets started with the assumption that these people have bad ideas and I'm going to expose them. And so even if you don't take it to the next step of then I'm going to suggest something else, as mm-hmm. a skeptic, you're not really trying to suggest something else anyway. You're just trying to get them to be a skeptic. So you're still kind of evangelizing for skepticism.
2: Yeah, I was going to say um, I'm probably evangelizing for some things. And I would I, 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 that's usually what I say. I am evangelizing for skepticism, critical thinking. And right now I'm evangelizing for street epistemology because... I would like your listeners to at least look into it and hey, maybe 10% of those folks actually watch a video and maybe 5% um, of your listeners actually look into it further, join a group and maybe even start taking it on, learning it, trying to make it better. I suspect so, uh,
1: 100% of our listeners will, if they haven't already watched video, they will. They're, they're people who follow our resources. I don't think that many of them will uh, join a group and but but they are um, as near as I can tell, I think that they will back me up on this. They are a group that will uh that will <laughs> follow your reasoning they will uh engage with you they'll look at your resources and that's um, great and yeah. we want nothing
2: more like that that's good. We like this pushback because it's helping us tweak this if if we were to what's interesting is that some people watch videos and then they watch. I don't know, they watch 30 videos and then they discover that there's a book and then they read the book that started this and they think, oh, my gosh, the videos are nothing like what the book is talking about. Mm-hmm. So my point here is that we've really come a very long way and we probably will continue to go. But if I could just address the point that you were making. Yeah, some, sometimes. So if I'm going out and I'm engaging with somebody and I, I, I suggest a bevy of topics and they pick God, which is one of my favorite topics to explore. And I'm an atheist. I don't think it's true. I suspect that you probably don't have good reasons for it. I absolutely have that going into it. However, I do try, and as possible as it might be to completely set it aside, I do try to be open to their reasons. Now, if they say I'm 100% sure Allah is real, and the main reason why I think that that's true is because I was raised this way, it's hard for me to say, oh, I could ask three more questions in part doubt, and they may very well start on a journey of revisiting this view and maybe even completely abandoning it. So I can understand how it could appear that we're evangelizing for a worldview because we're proceeding with the conversation. But here's the thing they really might have good reasons above and beyond the first, second, or third reason that they give for thinking that it's true. So this is ultimately about, is evangelizing the right word here? Street epistemology really is about finding the truth. Is a person using a reliable process for validating their reasons for confirming that something is true? And if they haven't, then maybe they need to be a little bit less certain. It doesn't mean that they're thinking that something is true and it's not true. I could have an unreliable process for concluding something is true, and that thing, in fact, be true. Okay, so there's, there's another important distinction there.
0: Yeah, and I, I just wanted to, I think that your approach could be adopted by anyone. Christians could take a street epistemology.
2: Right. In fact, we've we actually seen Christians look at the videos, I think, and say, whoa, you really had that person thinking. I want to help a person think about their non-belief, or I want to go out and talk to a whole bunch of Mormons because they're they're surely following the wrong God, and I want to bring them around to Jesus, the real Jesus, not this not this knockoff religion. So there are people who are looking at the videos and then seeing, oh, I can actually use this to to uh, to create a safe environment, help a person reflect on their belief, ask them lots of questions, perhaps even impart some doubts, and then they're crying. They're ready for this message of truth that I'm about to give them. That's usually where the street epistemology ends and the evangelism begins. But um, to Dale's point there, sure, we want as many people to learn this method. In fact, two days ago, I was at a a university called Trinity University. It's a highly religious religious university here in town. And I gave a joint workshop to a mixture of religious and non-religious students to teach them this method. Uh, in three days or so, I'm going to be doing the exact same thing in a larger group of mixed students on the claim for whether God exists or not, because I want everyone to learn. So this is a tool that anybody can learn to explore claims, religious or not, regardless of where you stand on that claim.
1: Okay, so kind of segueing into the the next major section of this, I think, um, I, I want to ask a, a kind of a sharp question here, uh, so I, I hope it doesn't come out sharper than I than I want to. I might it get to.
2: defensive and close off. That, so you know, okay, that's all right. <laughs> we could, I can handle that. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. I, <knew> it <laughs> I honestly, fun, so. the blunter and more direct questions are the better. So yeah. just just lay it out. What
1: What gives you the right to determine whether someone's uh, is, epistemology is good or not? I mean, you. You might think that they have a bad reason for believing, but really, who are you to say whether they really have a bad reason to believe? I mean, you've kind of set yourself up as a street epistemology, as almost like the the epistemology police. Uh, ah, I see so you've got a bad reason to believe this. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a ticket, <laughs> or I'm going to make you. <laughs> I'm going to make you feel bad about believing this thing. Mm-hmm. Well. I, I actually have a great... This is going to come as a shock to my listeners, so I'm going to break some news here. I have a great deal of sympathy uh, for uh, Christians and for plenty of other people who believe things that I think are absolutely not true. I don't believe that their reasons are bad for believing. Now, I, I don't think that the reasons they give provide good evidence for the truth of a thing, but I don't believe that they're bad reasons for why they believe it. So, for instance, I can tell you, when I was a Christian, uh, the number one reason I believed it is because my parents uh, told me that this was the case. I had no reason to disbelieve my parents or to not trust them in important life matters. It was only until I was an adult when I realized that my parents were just as screwed up as me um, and that I probably should not trust them uh, for for certain things. But as as a kid... I would say that is an exceptional reason uh, to believe, and there's nothing that you can say that you know should make a person feel bad for believing in their Christianity or Voodoo or whatever else they believe. If if that's their reason, that's a darn good reason. Now, it's not a reason for; it's not evidence for the truth of the claim. And so, you know, if you're breaking it out at this level, then I can I can see it, but. You know, you, are, are you really going around telling people that, uh, you know, they got bad reasons to believe? Is that really what you want to set yourself as being, the, the epistemology police?
2: Sure. Great question. So if you recall, we don't do a lot of telling. We do a lot of questioning. And the way that we would try to go about it is to be humble enough to recognize that we... We are not the arbiters of what's a reliable epistemology per se. Um, I would say that's probably the goal. Like, how can we, what's the most reliable way to conclude that that reason that you're giving is, uh, can hold the weight that you're putting on it? So rather than saying, that's a really, I don't know if we can swear in here or not. If you're going to say shitty, then yes, you can say that. I was going to say shitty. Yeah. Rather than saying, you're, You think that your God is real because your parents have told you this? That's a pretty shitty reason. Um, What would be the end result of that? Well, the person might think that you're insulting their parents, for one. They might be stunned that you've used such language. Could be two. They would probably think that you're attacking them and maybe become a little bit guarded. Three. Uh, You're accusing them of uh, maybe their parents lying to them or something. So none of that is productive. And maybe their parents really are a reliable source of information for them. So I would say try to give them the benefit of the doubt and explore it with questions. So rather than telling somebody and being the police or the arbiters of what's epistemologically sound, I think it's much better to explore with questions. In fact, I just had a conversation with a woman yesterday who, uh, not to change the topic too much, but she thought that spirits existed and that when, when loved ones die, you, you will, they stick around for a little while to the point where you should even leave out a little bit of water for them because they could be thirsty on their journey. And we started evaluating the quality of the reasons that she's giving, thinking that it's true. Now her reason was I hear my grandfather's footsteps and that is confirming to me that this is real and true. Grandfather's not passed away and I'm hearing his footsteps. So we had a little bit of discussion about, are you hearing footsteps? Are you hearing what sounds like footsteps? Are you hearing your grandfather's footsteps? So we had a nice little discussion about that, and we started exploring what it would take to change her mind. She said, "I need really good evidence. I, I need somebody to actually demonstrate what that noise is." So then we started talking about: Is she holding me to a higher standard to disprove her claim than she is the standard that she's using to accept the noises as evidence for her claim? so i didn't tell her anything about the footsteps i want to explore it i wanted well, i wanted to explore it with her by using questions to be clear but at no point am i telling her that's a pretty silly thing to be concluding or mm-hmm. that's a pretty bad reason i want her to figure that out on her own if that's the case she may actually have a really good reason for thinking that so you know maybe she had a recording of her grandfather walking through the house at one point, and then she captured a recording of the footsteps they're an exact patch. That would be interesting. So I want to give the benefit of the doubt and explain it. So, so um, I, I hope that that kind of addresses your question. Let me yeah. know. No, it, it,
1: it does. Because I, I separate out um, a good reason to believe something versus uh, evidence that something is true. Uh, I think that all kinds of things are, are good reasons to believe that that might end up not being good evidence that it's true. Uh, you know, you've in her case, for instance, she's heard her grandfather walk before, so she knows what his footsteps sound like. She's heard this sound that sounds like her grandfather's footsteps, right? So she's she's made a connection. <laughs> that, that connection is uh, very likely wrong, but it's not
2: it's not a stupid connection to make. Right. And telling her that it is wouldn't be productive. Now, what was really interesting about this talk, and we started talking about how other people and she had mentioned the raised. Uh, That's kind of you made me think of that example because we were talking. She said that she was raised in an environment where she was told that there were spirits and you could hear them and they would come back and they get thirsty on their journey out and so forth. Mm -hmm. So we started discussing what a person who might be raised to think that leprechauns were real what do you think a person who was raised in that kind of a kind of environment and then they heard footsteps pitter pattering through the house, do you think that they could use that same type of evidence, what you're calling evidence? Could they use that same quality of evidence and confirm something else is real and true? At which point I delivered my question, I paused. She took 30 to 45 seconds to process it, and she said yeah maybe that really wouldn't be so such good evidence if if anybody could conclude anything from that instance yeah. now that's a beautiful thing and she came to that on her own
1: Yeah, well that so i i guess i don't have a um problem with that uh Tell per se yeah i I, th- I think we can i i won't i want to transition us to The idea of what um, faith
2: is. So I know that that's uh, the next part here. Um, And you'll have to remind me what your previous guest called it. It's been a while since I've listened to your show where that came up. But yeah, so faith faith is one of those really tricky words. It is a, a suitcase word that has to be unpacked. Okay, so
1: before we unpack it, let me ask a kind of a, a very important question that I don't want to get lost. I think, it, in fact, I have to ask it first. Do you believe that a person chooses what they believe? Uh, because this is this is a very Christian idea, and it carries over uh, beyond matters of religion. But I think it's very important, and just so that you understand where I am coming from, I don't believe that we have. L- the, the kind of libertarian free will that we think we do. Mm-hmm. So and I appreciate I don't,
2: you revealing your position before you asked me mine. Yeah, it's very nice of you. Yeah, I don't. I don't <laughs> believe. That <was> not unnoticed.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I think it's important, so that you know where it's coming from. I don't. I don't believe that we can choose what we believe. I think to some degree we can choose what we want to believe, and I've actually been challenged on that, and I think a credible challenge. But I've often said I can. I can want to believe something. But I either believe something or I don't, and it's mm-hmm. it's not something I can't decide that I believe this or decide that I believe that. Just just try believing that, you know, you can fly. You, you can't actually believe that. If you can, you're mentally ill. Um, but if you're mentally stable, there are just some things you you don't have the choice to believe. You know, you can pretend to believe a thing. You can go through the motions of believing a thing. You can want to believe a thing, but you. Either believe things or you don't, and so starting with uh, what people believe, because this this affects their reasons in epistemology. If if we say they can't really choose what they believe, what they actually believe, I'm not sure that uh, you know some of these reasons even matter.
2: So where 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 do you stand here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm I'm with you in that. I don't think that we are choosing our beliefs. I think our beliefs are. Are derived at from the experiences that we're we're experiencing. And then when we're questioned on things that we think are, that we're asked about, who do you, who are you planning on voting for? Well, I'm not choosing to vote for a candidate. I think I'm, I'm forming this view through a series of interactions that I'm having with stimuli in the world. So when you ask me, Uh, Why do you think that there's a God? Why do you think that she's the best political candidate for the role? My brain probably then starts working to dig up Reasons to present to that person asking me these questions. Exactly.
1: Post hoc rationalization. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. you don't believe it, and then you think about the question, and then you say, "Well, this is why I don't believe it." That may yes. or may not be the answer to why you don't believe it, but you already don't believe it before the question was asked.
2: Um, Actually, I'm glad th- I'm glad this came up too, because oftentimes you'll notice in a lot of street epistemology videos where we say, "What's your reason for thinking that that's true?" and they say. But let's say they say the Earth is 6,000 years old, and you ask them why that's the case, and they say, Well, I've, I watched this really great documentary on fossils and how you can really make something look a lot older and test it in a way that would make it look millions of years old, but it's actually days old. So I, I don't, that's one of the reasons why. And then we can challenge the claim, we can challenge the justification that they're providing in a friendly way and say, if that could be explained how something like that could happen and uh, and that the earth really, uh, and that, that that reason isn't a good reason to dismiss an old earth, for example, would you still be just as confident that the earth is young? And if they say yes, then there's other reasons for it. So it's kind of a nice way of of lining up all the reasons on the shelf and sort of like pinging them like the little, sort of envisioning like going to a circus and you could just like take the little, BB gun and knock the little thing mm-hmm. off. And you can really narrow down the reasons why they're maintaining the belief. And I think that's different from the reasons that they have the belief, because mm-hmm. I do think that it's a post hoc type of rationalization. My goodness, I have this view. What are the reasons for it? And then your our brains just start looking for these reasons. And very often the reasons that your brain is serving up to give for the just give as justifications they're not the justifications. There's something else in there. Mm. So whether or not we do choose our beliefs, which I don't think we do, or we don't choose our beliefs, the reasons that we're giving are still worth exploring and challenging in a respectful way by asking questions. Because if somebody can discover, I have a few and I have no good reasons for thinking that it's the case. That in itself might be the experience that they need to begin embarking on a journey of lowering their confidence in their claim or getting rid of it.
1: So I absolutely agree with all of that. Uh, so uh, we we have found a giant uh, pile of ag- agreement, and I'm going to let Dale uh, in here real quick because uh, he's, he's, he's going to open up the other side of that can, which is a... Of of disagreement. So, um, but I I just wanted—I just wanted to add uh, to what you just said. That is an excellent example about the young Earth, Uh, and I can tell you, in my own journey, I I was a young Earth earth creationist Christian, Mm, Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was—I was—I was was complete fundy. Um, So, that said, even after I learned better you know, after I learned facts about uh, the age of the Earth, that still didn't phase me. Yep. So I know these facts now. The Earth, you know, everybody is saying that it's, you know, four, four and a half billion years old, universe is 13.75 billion years old, whatever it comes out to be. I get that. I acknowledge these things are true, and yet... I don't believe it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You see, mm-hmm. that's that's uh, because I still wasn't able to choose not to believe it, and uh, you know there there had to be the right circumstances. It's not just knowing enough facts before you actually believe or don't believe a thing. Um, and so I don't know when the, when it came to be that I didn't believe it. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't Mm -hmm. just a matter of informing me of facts. Yeah. That's not what it was.
2: Well, if you think back about my description about my journey out, even at a young age, like I was struggling to even remember what it was like. It wasn't one main thing. It wasn't the, the one little test I did in the room by raising my middle finger. I think it was a series of events where I suddenly discovered, oh, my gosh, I don't think that this is true. It's probably made up. And so just a little thing, you you mentioned facts, and there's something in Boghossian's book, and and Christian apologists love to jump on this as if it's a big gotcha, where he says something like, avoid facts. (laughs) (laughs) What he's meaning there, and I've I've become good friends with him, and I actually texted him one day, I'm in the process of writing a blog post to to address common misconceptions and misunderstandings of street epistemology. One of these days I'll write it, um, and that's one of them. And what he's saying there is that you don't want to discuss facts with people if they're not basing their view on facts. Now, if they are, if I'm a young earth creationist because I think I have facts that back it up and I could give you seven facts that are the basis for my belief, then I absolutely want to explore that with you. And yet, if I say something like, all right, let's just say hypothetically we explored all seven of those facts that you have and you came to the realization that they're not sufficient to warrant the belief, would you still think Jesus is real? And if they say yes, I would spend a minute going over any of those facts. Okay. There's something else probably going
1: on. Right. Let God be true and every man a lie. Uh, I, don't, I don't care what your calculator says. Uh, if God says one plus one is three, it's three. Uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of Christian I was. I think
2: at some level— That's the kind of Christian that all Christians are. I think that's virtuous. It's virtuous to to view the world this way, right? Like I am a good person because I'm willing to set aside reason and, and be all in on this thing because he is real. I'm going to see my loved ones again. And, and, uh, there, there's something noble and virtuous about setting aside reason and being willing to commit like that. So
1: I promised that I was going to let Dale in here. I'm going to do it with this segue. Um, Faith um, is pretending to know things you don't know. Your friend and mine, Peter Boghossian. Go.
0: Oh, okay. Um.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um. Was there a question in there? <laughs> <laughs> More fine. like an IED. I'm just going to toss it in and then I'm going to step back. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, um, so so yeah, I guess Anthony. So so this is your section. You you sort of wanted to talk about faith and and just uh, so we all know, I, I don't disagree with you guys. I, I also am an indirect doxastic uh, voluntarist. So I I don't think we can deliberately choose what we believe or not, but we can choose to put ourselves in a in the situation that over time we can change our beliefs and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, let's go straight into this notion of faith, because this is your, your topic. Um, What is it you wanted to discuss? Like um, what the nature of faith is or, or how faith is used in your conversations? Um, Yeah, I'll, I'll turn it to you to sort of lead the discussion on faith here.
2: To me, Anthony, you mean? To Anthony, yeah. Okay. Well, As I mentioned earlier, faith is one of those suitcase words that has to be unpacked because I've had conversations with people and they've both used that same word to mean my belief, to mean I'm of the Christian faith. So like as a noun to represent religion, to say the reason that I think that it's true is faith, or they say the method that I'm using to confirm my reasons is faith to, no, no, no. Once you conclude Jesus is real. Faith is the gift that you get after you concluded that it's real and true. And I've had people jump between those in the course of a single conversation. Mm. So it is a slippery, slippery word. And it caught a lot of people's attention when Boghossian wrote in his book that there's two definitions of this word. Pretending to know something that you don't know and believing without evidence. Most atheists, I think, would be on board with the second of those two definitions, like believing without evidence. And I've even talked to a lot of theists, who, when they drop the f-bomb, which is what we call it, <laughs> oh, they drop the f-bomb, they brought up the word faith. We immediately, most of the practitioners of street epistemology, realize the slippery nature of that word, and we almost immediately stop and ask our interlocutor to define the word. And I have had theists define that word to mean belief without evidence, unprovoked by me as an atheist engaging in a conversation or whatever. They offer that up. I'm not manipulating them to say that they are offering. that as the, as the definition. Um, no, nobody really, no theist that I know of would say I'm pretending to know things that I don't know. That is not a very useful definition. It's not accurate. And it could actually be disadvantageous if you even suggest that that word could possibly mean that. Um, so I don't like that definition. So I like my interlocutor to define that word for me. I'll usually jot it down, and I'm flexible on it. And I've had the word morph. So the initial definition might be, it's the faith is the, the feeling of love I get when I open my heart up to God. And when we dig a little deeper, they might say, "Well, it's kind of like a test. Like I hope that I'm going to pass the test, and I have faith that that's the case." They might define it as hope. And I think your previous guest maybe. I'm trying to think now. Oh, he smart, it, I think, did that... he define it as hope? Uh, um,
0: he,
1: I think he defined it as the more Christian way of doing it, which is trust—trust trust trust. in a person okay. or thing.
2: Trust is also a very common definition. And I think idea. it's, I personally think it's a cop out. <laughs> so, if you're, what, if you're curious what my personal definition of, of faith is,
0: yeah.
2: and I don't voice this on anybody, but based on hundreds and hundreds of conversations with people, whether they're Hindu, Christian, Muslim, whatever, I've even had non believers say, I have faith that, uh, that I have a soul and they're atheists or I have faith that that was a ghost in the kitchen and, and they don't even believe it in God. My definition of faith is a variation of trust. I think it means untestable trust. And that's a big difference. So when somebody says faith is X, let's say they say faith is trust. What I like to do then is start engaging in conversation, not where I'm telling them my definition or asserting that they need to use my definition like I see what some atheists do. I'm willing to entertain your definition of trust. How can we actually determine if that trust that you're putting on your reasons or your method, the trust that you're using to conclude with a high degree of confidence that you have the truth, how can we determine that that's justifiable? How can we determine that that's reliable? How can we actually test it? And at that point, a person might tend to say, well, they start giving real world examples. Well, you get on an airplane, right? You trust that pilot, you decide to sit in a chair. You trust that chair and trust in those instances can be tested. So for example, the trust that I place in a pilot can be tested. I can determine whether my trust was misplaced if the chair breaks or the plane crashes, how we test the trust you're placing that your God is How can you test the faith that you have or that you're using as a method, perhaps? And what I tend to find is that they don't have the ability to test it in certain instances. Mm-hmm. And those instances are when they're using it to their God is real.
0: Yeah, I I think I so I, I would go for the the trust the trust definition myself. And um faith faith is a multifaceted word. It there's multiple applications as you say some some people say oh i'm, I'm trusting the person jesus I, i'm you know it's in the same way you trust your wife and that sort of thing um there's also the trust in the propositions the truth of a proposition um that you don't have 100 percent knowledge is true or that sort of thing um i think i think your notion of untestable trust is interesting so it, i actually don't necessarily think that's true um because it comes down to, well, how, what do you mean by testable? Um, or, or I would say a warranted trust. Can, can something be, so for example, I would say, and this is the way the Bible uh, speaks, they'll say, I have trust that um, the second coming will happen. I have no way of testing that, it's a future event. You know, you can't test that directly, but it is warranted or testable indirectly by having warrant for believing Christianity is true and that the Bible is the word of God and the Bible says this future event will happen. So therefore I am warranted in trusting that because it is testable indirectly. So I I was just wondering, what, what do you make of maybe having indirect versus directly testable things?
2: Well, I, I guess I would wonder if we can use that same approach of trust that one might use to conclude that there's a future event will happen and, uh, and, and apply it in a, in a real world situation. So, um, like for example, I guess I could come on your podcast again. Right. And you could trust that that's the case, maybe based on me agreeing to do it, but would you be hundred percent confident that I, that I'll be on another podcast with you no. based on, hmm? Oh no, no. Okay. And, and yet, if it, it, you know, the way of testing that claim, sure, you can trust that it's going to happen, but the way to actually verify that it's going to happen might be to gather more evidence. So, for example, maybe later you say, this was a really good podcast. I'd really like to have you back on. And you send me an email. And I, I take a day and I reply and I say, that sounds great. Well, then maybe you have a little bit more evidence to think that that's going to happen. Um, now, we're talking about future events. Let me just take you through a typical path. That, that we might find ourselves down to faith and trust, if, if you'll allow me. Sure. I asked a person, why do you think Jesus is real? And the person says, well, it says so in the Bible. And I say, how did you determine that the Bible is a source of truth, that you can actually believe the things that it says? And they say, well, I take it on faith that it's the truth. And I say, well, how do you define the word faith? And they say, trust. And then I say, well, how can we actually test the trust that you're placing in the conclusions of the Bible? And that's the point where a person usually comes to realize, I don't know if I have the ability to test it. That's why I think untestable trust is probably the best definition. I'm. I'm not going to tie anyone to that definition, but if you were to ask me my definition, that's what it is because it that's what it seems to be the case It's untestable trust in this lifetime because a lot of people will say well we'll find out when we die. well, if it doesn't work the way that we that you're proposing, then we probably want to try to figure out this lifetime whether or not it's the case
0: one thing okay one quick follow up on that so that so that's interesting so you, you do recognize that one could have pos- potentially have indirect warrant um, for a particular belief that has no direct warrant or that sort of thing. Um, you you know, with your email example of you coming on the show and that sort of thing, I, I would be indirectly warranted and um, in believe, but you're saying you need 100% um, warrant. Would you recognize that maybe someone could be 51% or? 60 percent warranted in this regards like you, you do ask the scale that i certain.
2: do yeah I, I do try to view things not on a binary it's true or not well there, there's two there's two dimensions to this i suppose it, it's either a fact or it's not a fact but our confidence we, we try to view things in terms of a person's confidence that what they think is true is really true So you'll often notice us proposing a scale of confidence. So for example, to to harken back to my conversation with the woman about spirits, she was 90% sure that spirits are real. That was her claim. By the end of the conversation, she was less confident because we evaluated it because we evaluated the quality of the evidence that she was putting forward to arrive at her conclusion. So let's say we had that brief email exchange, right? You email me, you commend me about the show. I email you back and say, I'd love to come back on. Your confidence that I might be on your show again might have moved from a 20 to a 40 or something because it's vague. We haven't picked a date. And then you email me back and we actually schedule a date and a time. I would imagine your confidence would go up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But if I don't email you back for a month and we're closing in on the, on the date that, that we're supposed to do our thing, I would imagine your confidence would probably slip. But then if I say, listen, I've been on vacation. I'm so sorry. I didn't have access to email. I'd love to be on your show. Let's pick a date and time. We do. Uh, Your confidence that I would be on might jump up to a 90. So our confidence in our claims do tend to fluctuate, I think, based on the inputs that we're receiving and our evaluation of those. So let me
1: me just step in and make sure that um, I understand both of you because it sounds like you're talking past each other a little bit. So, Anthony, you were saying faith is belief uh, or acceptance, confidence in a thing without, uh, without evidence. And, Dale, you were saying— well, No,
2: that's not actually—that actually is not
1: correct. Okay, say—make say, your statement again, because what Dale was saying, he was substituting, um, you know, evidence or whatever word you were using for warrant, and I'm not entirely sure those are the same
2: things— Okay, well for the email example, I'm not even proposing that Dale's using faith at all. Because he has a certain amount of dialogue going back and forth with me and he's he's gathering I suppose evidence from his experiences of his interactions with me and his confidence is fluctuating. Now I don't know if if, we could, if Dale would say that he's trusting that I'm going to be on his show in the same way that he's trusting that the Bible is a source of truth, for example. Um, that would probably be a good question for him. But um, my, my definition of faith isn't belief without evidence. It's more untestable trust.
1: Right, okay, so it, the inability to test it, and if I can add a word to that, em- empirically test it? Is that what we're talking about? Hmm. because what, what Dale is saying is there are other ways to test without empiricism
2: mm, okay possibly yeah there that, so this is good this is, there very well may be ways to test the trust that Dale is placing in his conclusions other than pointing to a series of emails to say look at I've had this back and forth exchange with Anthony for the last three weeks it's very likely that we're going to do a second show
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Cool. Uh, Yeah. And yeah, that is, that is what I say. Like um, I think we should say that for section three when it gets into me, but yeah, I I do think I I would say with David in terms of warrant, that does come from evidences, but you're right to point out what counts as evidence. That's not just necessarily empirical evidences. There are other types of evidences as well. Um, Yeah. um, You know,
2: it's, this, this actually reminds me of a dialogue that I had with a guy at that at Trinity University. We had set up a table for three hours to do to record some conversations, and he, he felt led by the Holy Spirit to come up and talk with me, and he did. We talked for 40 minutes. And then he came to my workshop in the evening from 7 to 9 and sat through the whole thing, participated, and even stuck around as I was gathering up my gear, and he came up to me, and he was saying, it basically, I made a tweet about this too, but it basically ended where he said, listen, I realize I don't... I realize that I don't have evidence to think that the Christian God is real. It's all faith. Now, it was 930 at this point and I was tired, but it's conceivable that he could define that word to mean trust. Mm -hmm. So he's essentially saying, I I don't want words in his mouth, but he could very well be saying, I don't have evidence for concluding that the Christian God is real. I'm trusting that it's the case. And then if I were to meet with him again, probably examine the, what he means by the word trust or faith, if he defines it as trust, he might define it as something else. And how can we determine that the trust that you're placing in your conclusion is warranted? Could I use the same level of trust? Can I use trust and conclude that a completely different God is real? If I could, what does that say about trust as a method for concluding that something is true? Now, notice that I'm not telling him at any point that he's wrong or that's a shitty definition or anything like that. I'm not the not the policeman in this case. I'm uh, I'm more like a passenger in the car as he's driving. And I'm asking him why did he decide to turn down that road?
0: Cool. Okay. Um yeah, I think I think this is a perfect um segue into it's the- almost perfect. I'm wrecking your segue
1: because I wanna just step right <laughs> in. Time. I knew yeah, it. I knew you were gonna about, go so there and I wanted to stop, stop you before you did it. Well, I just wanted to jump in really briefly and add but- my own take to faith. Uh because it's it's different than both of yours. And so okay. the two of you have a slightly different take, but I I would like to offer a third one that's a little bit more Bogosian style. Um, and and there's a reason for it. Uh, so in most things, I would absolutely agree with uh, what you've said, Anthony. Um, I, I am not interested in dictionary definitions of words. I don't care what the thing means. Don't care. What I care is what you mean when you say it. Yes. Right? So that's that's mostly the case for me. But when it comes to faith, I have to step outside of that general rule. And I can't I actually don't care um, what the Christian says that faith means to them. Because we're not talking about something where everyone can just create their own meaning. And as as you pointed out, in a discussion with a Christian, they'll use they'll they'll define faith for you, but then they'll use it 17 different ways. And so there are two things. A, what really is important is how they use it, not what they say they mean by it. Um, because what they say they mean by it is, is often a different thing than how they actually use it in practice. The other thing is, for the Christian, the word comes predefined. It is, in fact, a fundamental part of the Christian religion that you don't get to make up ad hoc. So the Christian can't just say, "Well, I think faith is this." Well, actually, the, the discussion that you should be having if you're talking about Christian faith is what the Bible says about faith.
2: Hebrews eleven one. Yeah.
1: So if you're if you're not talking about what the Bible says about faith, what Jesus has said about faith, it's you know, uh, you you only believe because you saw. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. This sort of thing. Um, we walk by faith and not by sight as a contrast to sight. So whatever you want faith to mean is irrelevant to me if we're talking about theology, because that's something that is set in stone and you don't get to change it. And if you're not talking about the same faith that the Bible is talking about, then I don't really care.
2: Um, See, I'm glad you raised that. And, and if, if you'll allow me here, sure. Dale, because I know you wanted to transition yeah. to something well, else, but can I just oh, address that real quick?
0: Yeah, Absolutely
2: this is where i think the difference in our styles is is really coming coming to the forefront because uh here's here's why that could be problematic yes you're absolutely right faith is very clearly defined somewhat clearly defined in hebrews 11:1 and maybe a few other places in in the in the christian book now i could be talking to a hindu who thinks faith is required for them to conclude that vishnu is real or allah or a Muslim or whatever. So, But for a Christian we're talking about, we're probably largely talking to a Christian audience here. Telling a person, especially if you're an atheist and you're, advi- you're admonishing them that they're not using the proper definition of faith in their holy book, is probably not going to go over very well. Now, you can help them discover that there's a definition in the book and it might conflict with their definition, and then you can say, well, which of the two definitions do you think is the most accurate here? let them make the conclusion of which definition best represents what they what they think is the case. And it's a slippery word. They may say, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm going I'm to jump aboard that definition of the Bible. I think it's, it's the, it's the evidence of things hoped for the substance of things not seen or something. I might be butchering that. Yeah, no,
1: that's good.
2: Um, but they might shift again They may say, well, it's hope. No, it's trust. It's this, it's the feeling that you get. And it's just one of those slippery words. So, um, I, I think a lot can be said for how you, how you point out. <laughs> you can be really aggressive and point it out and say, listen, you're not following your own holy book, you idiot. And I'm not saying that you're that aggressive. Or you can say... Yeah, I'm almost that aggressive. <laughs> it depends, it depends <laughs> on if I'm talking there. to Dale. <laughs> <laughs> or you can say, are you being consistent with what your holy book might say on this? So they might say, well, no, I, I really do think faith is hope or it's trust, or it's a feeling that you get when you feel the warmth in your bosom that the Angel Moroni really is true. And then they might go out and actually figure out from their pastor, whatever what the advisable definition of that word is. You know what, also, just a a side note to the side note to the side note here. I do see a lot of apologists who are worried about the street epistemology videos that are being put online and seeing Christians doubting and other people about views that they've held for the longest time realize that they don't have a good reason for it, they serve faith, they come to realize that maybe it's not reliable, depending on how to define it. What's interesting is that apologists seem to have a completely different definition of the word faith than your average lay person on the street. Agreed. And I, I have some views on why that might be the case, but I, I think it's curious that there would be such a distinction between those two groups of folks and this work.
1: Absolutely agreeing. and um, we probably agree on the reasons. We won't go any further, though. I um, you've really gone down that rabbit hole. Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting topic for me, so I was I've been chomping at the bit to talk about it anyway. But yeah, I don't I don't actually disagree with what you have said, and I don't know. So I don't focus so much on how to, how is this going to come across and how effective is this going to be. I mean, I, I think about it generically, but that's not what determines what comes out of my mouth at the moment, <laughs> honestly. Uh, when I'm having do ever, a...
2: Do you ever find that that conflicts with your objectives, your goals, though, in a conversation? Do you have objectives and goals in a conversation? And do you, do you ever reflect back and think maybe that could have gone a little bit better?
1: N- well, no, it doesn't conflict with my objections and goals because I think there are multiple ways to reach the goals that I have. So I don't think that, for instance, uh, being a... Um, a um, a, a kind of a, a radical uh, is is a good approach for most people. I think most people can't pull it off. I think it is a good approach for some people. Um, I think that it is exactly what the situation calls for sometimes. So when the situation calls for a softer tone and um, you know more diplomacy don't call a polemicist like me i'm a polemicist <laughs> so i'm glad that we have other people who can use other approaches but there are plenty of times when polemic is the only thing mm. that works into a situation so yeah i'm i'm a polemicist and i don't i don't apologize for that and my method works just fine but it's not the only thing that works and there are other people for whom it wouldn't work and their methods wouldn't work for me so i don't I don't really think in terms of, oh, well, you've got the best approach, and so everyone should take up your approach. No, that's not true. You have a approach, and uh, if it works for you, that's good. So do I,
2: <laughs> and it works for me, so that's
1: good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know and I, hope,
2: I, and I hope I didn't give anyone the impression that I'm saying, set aside the polemicist toolkit uh, you know, tool in your toolbox because it never has its place. I absolutely think it does have its place. The the challenge, though, that I think is that a lot of people might see a polemicist arguing with a person online or in a a video or watching a debate with Hitchens destroying William Lane Craig or something, and they think, oh, that's how I need to engage with my mom the next time we're in town. And that could really be problematic. So really consider not only your personality and what you're good at, but what your objectives are and what your venue is and who your audience is. Just
1: just do a little thought experiment and imagine just from your time with me now, what kind of Christian I was. Just
0: Just just, After this, yeah, after this, let Anthony get the last word, and then we'll transition into the the next one. Yeah,
1: we're going to get there, (laughs) Ross. So just you can imagine what kind of personality I was as a Christian. Um, I can tell you, polemic was the only thing that could work on me. That that was that's what worked for well, you said me. You were a young creationist, right? yes, uh, yes, Pentecostal, maybe. No, were you Pentecostal. No, I wasn't that crazy. <laughs> <laughs> to
2: think was the other revivalist or something. I don't know what you were.
1: No, no, but look, it, it doesn't matter. I'm, uh, but I, I, pro- I, I, promise though, I uh, to cut through to me, it required uh, polemic. Uh, and so mm. that's good. And I'm not saying that everybody is like me, but I know that a lot of people are like me and they let, let me, you're not going to, you're you not going to reach them. I would yeah, reach yeah. them. And there are plenty of people that pure.
0: I wouldn't reach that you would reach. Okay, so let Anthony come back. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, my, my comeback is a question. Unfortunately, that's, that's just my nature. That's, that's um, fine. Was, was the polemic approach directed at you personally, like in a one-on-one conversation or did you observe a polemic? Dialogue
1: all all the, all the way around, so hmm. third party conversations and or uh, uh, approaches or events that were effective for me were polemic. Okay. Uh, so if I you know if I'm watching something on television or listening to a comedian or you know whatever, those were going to be more effective than other other types of things. And when people uh, are dealing with me personally, yeah, they're going to have to. They're going to have to get in there and get real enough so that it cuts through mm. uh, my noise. They, mm-hmm. they have to say something that can
2: cut through. Mm-hmm.
1: And um,
2: there have been times so. where I've ramped up and I've become a little bit more harsh or abrasive in the midst of an SE dialogue. Um, we talked earlier about how I've, I've had multiple conversations. There's one on my channel with with I've had three talks with one guy and I was getting progressively polemic with him. Mm-hmm. Because it didn't seem like my more Socratic questions were landing with them. but I, I think we've maybe deviated too much, Dale. I'm sorry for.
0: for oh no, worries. no no. It's I think it's I think it was imp- fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I thought it was important to to tease out. And thank you, David, for for giving some good comeback on you know how how street epistemology works theoretically. What what are some of the issues and how to contrast with with other approaches, but. Um yeah now now we're going to get into the fun part. We're going to transition from, you know, discussing this method in theory to actually having a practical illustration. So, um basically Anthony's going to do street epistemology on, on both me and then afterwards on David. So, good um, luck. <laughs> and yeah, and just just you know, yeah, there there will be some element of we're we're trying to illustrate how it could work in reality. So, there there may be some curveballs thrown at Anthony to see how he interacts with with someone or something like that so uh yeah with that anthony let's let's pretend i've starting with me i've I've come up to you on the street you know hey uh what are you what are you up to here
2: sure and let me just preface this by saying live demonstrations on podcasts of se don't usually go very well um for some reason i don't know if it's because i can't see you or or what but um i hope people don't walk away from this this attempt at se of thinking oh gosh that was just like horrible go watch the videos would be my oh. recommendation we'll, we'll have, have we'll so have I'm plenty in here. the links <laughs> why, yeah. why
0: doesn't it work do you find out of, out of curiosity
2: I, I don't know i don't know maybe because maybe we're role-playing and it's not actually a belief or uh
0: okay i don't know it might least... it
2: might it might oh, it might go swimmingly i don't know but let's keep it real brief too i'm thinking like maybe five minutes per person that's,
0: that's fine yeah that's
2: okay cool. uh okay so 7-0. Hey,
0: uh, hey what are you, what are
2: you doing here? So, so I'm out here having conversations with people. I'm asking people to select a claim that they think is true. I'm using something called street epistemology where I, rather than tell you that you're wrong or ridicule you maybe for what you think is true. I'll ask you questions to get down to the foundation of what's really propping it up. So I'll ask questions to explore what you think is true and why you think it's true and how you concluded that those reasons are good. And I'd really like to encourage you to pick the topic because I don't want to pick a topic that you don't think is true. Uh, did you, are you willing to have five minutes just to chat about that? And are you okay if I record it? Sure,
0: yeah, absolutely.
2: Wonderful, thank you so very much. My name is Anthony, by the way.
0: Oh, hey, I'm Dale, nice to meet you.
2: Pleasure. So what brings you here today? What keeps you busy?
0: Um, yeah, well, this
2: just- This the building I'm- phase. By the way. Sorry? This, uh, this this is the rapport building phase. We can do this really quick. But yeah, what, what keeps you busy, busy? What brings you by the campus today?
0: Yeah, I'm uh, just going to a class. I got a, a class in about an hour. So I was just enjoying the, the weather out here in the meantime.
2: It's a gorgeous day. I love filming when it's nice, bright, sunny out. Well, that's cool. Well, um, so I gave a couple of, I don't know if I gave a couple of examples. Uh, sometimes people want to talk about karma or politics or gender is binary. Sometimes they want to talk about, that they think that there's a higher power or there's not a higher power or whatever. We can really broach any subject. Anything that you want to chat about?
0: um, Yeah. I'm I'm a Christian. I I believe Christianity is true.
2: Mm. Okay. We can definitely explore that. Would it be fair to characterize your claim that you think that the Christian God is real?
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Okay. All right. Have you ever given some thought as to why you actually think that that's the case? That, do you have a main reason why? Are there lots of reasons why?
0: Something yeah. Like yeah. Um, so there there are multiple reasons. Um, so the the way I sort of look at religions is I split them up into positive and negative evidence. Hmm. So so evidence is sort of. Uh, Say yes, Christianity is true. And then on the skeptical side, evidences uh, that are negative that say that imply Christianity is false. Mm. Um, and then I, I put that in a formula, sort of a, a beige. Um, and then overall, it gives me the cumulative probability. And I, I came out showing that Christianity is more probably true than not. But yeah, there are about three or four positive factors that play into my decision. There.
2: Interesting. It actually kind of reminds me of like the utilitarian Jeremy Bentham sort of thing where he would make a list and, and try to figure out the best course of action. Is it kind of something like that? Or am I off?
0: Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think you're uh, along the the right lines there for sure.
2: Okay. And so now I'm in the repeating back phase. So I guess in in addition to role-playing, I'll sort of point out things that I'm doing. So now I'm going to repeat back what I think I heard. Um, So just so that I understand correctly, I think, the reason why you think the christian god is real is because you've taken a look at various things that people put forward as evidence and then you've you've come up with a way to weigh them and then you make an assessment whether that's that's a good piece of evidence to to support the claim or that's not so much of a good piece of evidence and maybe it even detracts from from the likelihood of the claim being true yep yeah okay you have more reasons for thinking more bits of information or, or more bits of evidence to support the claim that not. Okay. I'm curious about your process for determining which box to put it in. So when you encounter, like, can you give me an example of a piece of evidence that you discovered? And then rather than like getting all wrapped up in that, that piece of evidence, I'd like to talk about your process that you're using to decide whether it's a good piece of evidence to support your claim, or a negative piece of evidence.
0: Sure. So, yeah, sure. And and it could be that a given claim or piece of evidence could be used both ways um, as well. It just depends on how you're using it. But um, on the on the positive end, so one example that we won't get into in detail, but the shroud, the evidence from the shroud of Turin, is is one of the three or four factors that makes me think that um christianity is true and the way i evaluate positive evidences so i i do that based on it fulfilling certain criteria um, that philosophers have come out come up with to identify an event as a you know quote-unquote miracle or that sort of thing so um yeah i don't know how much detail you want to get into but uh yeah basically i think the evidence if the evidence for an event fulfills those criteria that's what i count as positive evidence
2: Hmm. Okay, so somewhere along the line, the criteria of the piece of evidence is established, and then you compare what's being surfaced as evidence to the criteria to see if it warrants accepting or tossing out?
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Kind of like that. Okay. What was your level of confidence? I don't know if I propose the scale or not. We don't have to do it. This is optional, but I, I if you watch any of my videos, you'll notice that I do this, but... Yeah. On a scale from zero to 100, how confident are you that your God is real, that the Christian God is real? Where 100 is, there's no question in your mind, there's no doubt, and zero would be all I have is questions, all I have is doubt.
0: Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I can actually give you an exact number through, through my method, which is weird. And so I am in a minimally 53.14%. How interesting.
2: Uh, Do you have a spreadsheet or something per, that you manage regarding this? I'm really curious.
0: Um, my I, I don't have a spread. Um, I don't have a spreadsheet, but I I have like Word documents. Um, yeah, I I can show you like send you a write up as to how the hmm. calculations work. I I do have, yeah I have an attachment in the show, so yeah I can send you stuff on how it works.
2: That's cool. I don't honestly I don't think I've ever encountered somebody that was so specific with their level of confidence that something is true. So I'm I'm now really really curious. How you arrived at such a level of confidence okay so you had mentioned the Shroud of Turin and I'm I'm getting the impression that based on the criteria that was established and y- you investigated the uh, the findings with regards to the Shroud of Turin and then somehow this influenced your confidence if we were to is that correct like yeah. yep yeah okay
0: and, and sorry, this is part of me being the role-playing. Here's the, here's the curveball. So, uh, sorry, you're, you're asking me all these questions, Anthony. Do you mind if I ask what, what do you believe? Like, uh, you know, what what are you about? Why why are you doing this? You want
2: to know about my motivations, why I'm doing this?
0: Um, well, what, what do you believe? What are your personal beliefs?
2: If you were to ask me on the same scale of confidence where I am that the Christian God exists, I would probably put myself really, really low on that scale, like maybe at a two.
0: Okay.
2: Okay. Yeah. Now I guess I'm kind of wondering too, like if I, if I, you know, it'd be really interesting though. I'm thinking that if, if I studied and looked into the Shroud of Turin, do you think that I would find it as compelling as you have and, and find myself moving up on my level of confidence that the Christian
0: God is real? I think you could. Um, I, I, I think that you are pretty open-minded in that sort of thing. Um, However, I, w- I would say that the, the evidence from the shrouded Turin isn't overwhelming in terms of it being a G believe authenticating of, uh, or in terms of it being a miracle uh, or a positive evidence. So I, I do think that a reasonable person can study the evidence and not find it more probable than not. But by the same token, I could say that a reasonable person can push it. So I, I would probably be about 60 to 65% on the, the shroud being a positive evidence.
2: Mm. What overall impact does the Shroud of Turin have on your current level of confidence? So for example, let's say you and I did make the time to research it together and, and it was your attempt to show me how great this was. And yet in the process, you came to realize, oh, maybe this really isn't as solid as I thought that it would. What impact would you think that it would have on your 53.131%?
0: Uh, yeah, so it um, it would make it go below the 50%. Percentile mark at this point. Um, so, yeah, gi- given those numbers, uh, when I converted, I would no longer be a Christian. So, it, at the moment, this is an essential piece of why I converted.
2: Okay. Wow. Now, I just have to say, just it, jumping out of the role play for a second, mm-hmm. it's odd, not odd, it's unusual. Odd <laughs> I means like weird, perhaps. I don't mean it that way. It is a little unusual for someone to. to not only have such a specific percentage, but reveal that the discovery that it's not a solid of a piece of evidence that they thought that it was, that it, that it not only would significantly lower their confidence, but it's the linchpin to their belief. So um, in the interest of time, I mean, we, we can keep exploring this if you want, but um, because I do like to keep these brief, let yeah. me just say, if we met again, or if we actually had a conversation in real life, or you did. Bring me back for a second show.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course.
2: This you're... is increasing my confidence that maybe there will be a second show. Um nice. <laughs> I think it would be fascinating to explore that claim with you. Do you see it as a claim or do you see it as evidence, the shroud of Turin?
0: Um yeah, so I, I see it as evidence. You um, see it
2: as evidence that supports your belief. Then yeah, I wouldn't want to just this this would be an example where you've surfaced a fact and I'm putting quotation marks with my fingers. Mm-hmm. You're surfacing evidence. And this would be an instance where I would want to go with you to investigate it with you to see how you determine that it warrants being the linchpin in your view that the Christian God is real.
0: Gotcha. So that was good. Yeah, cool. Yeah, good, good example there. I, I, I enjoyed that. Um, well, I think
2: the timer just beeped, and uh, we can certainly go on longer if you want, but I think I'm, I'll probably move on to another person. But here's a puzzle piece. I'd like you to take one of these three pieces, and then maybe if you spot me again, we can do a second chat.
0: Okay, sounds good. Thanks, thanks for your time, Anthony. It was really my pleasure. Thanks, Dale. Awesome. All right. So so yeah, now uh we'll do the same thing again, but uh this time with David uh coming. <laughs> so this is the
1: outcome that I fully expected with uh with your roleplay. I, I just want to confirm for no you. Kidding. Yes, it is. well I've been I've been uh, having discussions with Dale every week for a
2: year uh, on air. So. Are, they, are they online where I can listen to him? Absolutely. I got to say, it would be freaking amazing to hear you do a five minute chat with him with your approach. Oh, it is freaking say. amazing.
0: <laughs> Week after week. If it's, if it's already
2: online, I don't want to rehash it, but I think it would be fascinating. It's the best stuff. freaking
1: podcast on the internet. Mm. <laughs> so, Yeah, no, we do this. We do this a lot. And the reason I expect it, it to go that way is because part of the preconception of the, um, and I don't even mean that in a bad way, part of, the pre- part of what you're doing is you're talking to people who haven't thought through their beliefs very much. Dale has thought through his beliefs very much. Um and so it's gonna be, you know, that that's not to say that he's right about anything that he believes. He is not. <laughs> that said, you will <laughs> you will not find too many people who have thought through their beliefs
2: more thoroughly. Mm-hmm. And and on that note, it doesn't it doesn't um invalidate street epistemology or retard it in some way it just makes it a little bit more time consuming to get through it yeah so you can still run into a very competent believer who can very in a very cogent way explain their confidence level to like to three decimal points <laughs> yeah. and, and give a really good reason that's the linchpin of their belief like and, and be able to adequately explain it and point out all this evidence. Um, the typical believer, I would say, probably is not there. They are maybe grasping at reasons for having the belief or maybe they thought about it to some extent. But just because I'm running into an experienced believer, for lack of a better word, it doesn't mean that I need to use a different set of tools. I can still use the SE approach. It's just going to take longer.
1: Yeah, it's going to take about 15 hours. Uh, to
2: possibly. <laughs> to possibly. And this is, this is actually a good point. Do I really want to spend 15 hours with Dale? No, do you don't. 15? Do I want to spend one hour with 15 people each? Right. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the other thing. Maybe I actually do want to spend 15 hours with Dale because if he has this podcast and he reaches a large audience and it could actually be quite valuable for people to observe his journey of investigation and possibly even lowering his confidence and maybe even abandoning this view. Yeah. So um, this might be 15 hours I'd be willing to invest. We well, you know, we might if, just if, have to schedule 15
1: shows. Uh, so consider this <laughs>
2: consider this the first big commitment. No. But, but hey, you know, maybe i But kick the ball, you know, kick the ball a little bit further down the down the field. For for Dale and maybe a friend of his wants to pick it up, and and yeah. there, maybe there's a listener that runs into him as a, at a conference and asks him a few more questions, and maybe somebody so, can pick up the mantle and investigate the, the shroud of Torn a little bit. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's a springboard, perfect. Okay, um, so yeah, let, let's David. It. It's uh, it's your turn to, to so, do the. So
1: for the sake of time, I will just uh, jump in. I would like to um, make the claim that the world would be better off without religion
2: mm. okay the world is better off without religion and it's really nice to meet you and i really appreciate you taking five minutes to chat with me about this one thank you i don't know if i've ever had this topic before uh what do you mean by religion exactly just so we're on the same page well, uh, I think
1: it's what most people would ordinarily mean by it. So I don't know if I've got a formalized definition, but it's like obscenity. You know it when
2: you see it. Um, they, well, the reason I ask, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, uh-huh. but the reason I ask this is because I've heard people say atheism is a religion or I, I am so into golf that my wife calls it my religion. So I want to make sure that you're not advocating for for getting rid of golfers and closing down golf courses or something like
1: no, that. No, I, I think those are fairly generic um, uh, ideas when people don't really want to wrestle with religion. So they it, everyone knows what religion is, and that's, that's kind of a dodge in my opinion. But to be a little bit more formalized about the definition, I would say that uh, two core a, a core tenet of all religions is that there is something wrong with you or there's something wrong with the world. And the religion offers the solution to that thing that is wrong in a systematic way. And it usually involves uh, some foray into the supernatural.
2: Mm. Okay. So if I understand what you're saying, it's your position that when people hold views that there's a supernatural solution to, for human beings and the world in general, That's a position that you think we would be better off without. Yes. Okay. Let me know if I'm, if, if I'm restating that properly, I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent what you're saying. No, that's good. Okay. That'll work. All right. What would a, what would a perfect world look like? I mean, how do you think people would navigate the world without a religion, without a supernatural view? that asserts these things.
1: Okay, so I uh, just want to push back mildly. I didn't say anything about a perfect world. Uh, so I don't know what a mm. perfect world mm. would look like. I oh, said right. a said better it would be world. Better. Yeah. It would be better.
2: Mm-hmm. My apologies. Yeah. So yeah, so, uh, so how that, would That's a be that's better? a very long
1: discussion of what what
2: utopia would be. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it would be it would be improved in some way if there wasn't religion. So what yes. what would that improvement look like? I mean, can you name three things that? Uh, I that can, can name point? at
1: least one. Okay. Um, so I think that uh, we would be further along in our knowledge cycles than we are now. So what is a knowledge cycle? Uh, it's 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 a unit of uh, of informational evolution uh, that I have invented to. To talk about knowledge, so uh, informational evolution might be the the what we have learned about biology since pasteurization. Um, you know, we've we've had a, a complete knowledge cycle that it's taken us far. than you know, we've learned about the germ theory uh, mm-hmm. of disease instead of the sin theory of disease. That's a knowledge cycle. Oh, I see. Um, it's
2: your position that we might be further advanced uh, scientifically. And, and, and our better. We, we'd, have, we'd have a better understanding of the world and, and be further ahead, maybe technologically and scientifically, if religion hadn't been around.
1: Yes. I think that religion has uh, been a retarding effect on human knowledge. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Are you of the position that like we might actually have bases on Mars and, and figuring out light travel at this point or something like that, maybe? I don't know. If we hadn't.
1: Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not scientist enough to say how far uh, along we would come, but I mm-hmm. think that we would, if, for instance, we hadn't been wasting time uh, mm-hmm. bowing down to gods when people got sick and or throwing people into volcanoes to, to please mm-hmm. gods, we could have come up with uh, medicine faster.
2: Oh, I see. Okay. And how are you concluding that that would be the case? can you take me through how you actually determined that if religion hadn't been involved we would be ahead
1: yeah because we wouldn't have been doing religion now i suppose you could say we would have been do- we might have been doing something else just as unbeneficial mm. and and that's i suppose that's possible but we wouldn't have been doing religion, so we would have had a better chance. So there would have been one fewer things on the table, one fewer non-beneficial uh, pastimes that we would have been doing, and we would have come closer to to discovering uh, soap and pasteurization and things mm-hmm. like that
2: faster. Mm-hmm. Right, I understand the claim that if if religion wasn't around, we'd be a, we'd be a further along the path of of advancement. If it hadn't been around. Right, but, but you a ask word me word you asked
1: me how I know that. And so I'm I'm, yes. I'm just trying to break it down. If you think in terms of well, there are a hundred things, a hundred distractions between us and better medicine. And religion is one of those distractions. Take mm-hmm. out religion and now you've only got ninety nine things uh, between you and the cure. So that's still better.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you think it's possible that there could actually be some advantages to having a religion that may have actually contributed to advancements? And if, the, if religion hadn't been around, that maybe we wouldn't be so far along or maybe just be where we're at now? No. Uh,
1: so this is, a, this is a fairly common Christian claim that religion has done so much good for the world that wouldn't have otherwise been done. And I don't believe that Christians can support that claim that if they hadn't done it, no one would have done it. Consider the claim that Jesus makes, a new religion, I mean, a new uh, command I give you, love one another, as as if this is a new command. Now, we, we would have never decided in the world that loving one another may be better than punching each other in the face. But thank God that Jesus came along And gave us this new command. Now we can love one another. Well, I think that's absurd. And I think that's the type of things that Christians claim with all kinds of good things. And I don't want to say that Christians have never done any good things because they have. But the fact of the matter is the course of human evolution uh, brought us many good things. And so you can say we're we're much better off socially than we were a thousand years ago. Well, you Christianity doesn't get the credit for that Christianity is a part of the social evolution that we' have done we've have, we've have altered our religion Christianity has altered over a thousand years to make it better and to make it you know socially better otherwise we still have slavery uh, supported by Christianity well Christianity didn't fix that Christianity was fixed along with uh, everyone else when we decided enough was enough with slavery so uh, yeah, can we say that there were some Christians who did some things and led the march to to certain uh, areas of social evolution? Absolutely, but we were on that we we're on our way anyway, <laughs> so I don't know that you can prove that we would never have achieved what we've achieved without Christianity. The evidence seems to, to be pointing in the other direction. We mm-hmm. would have achieved it faster.
2: I want to just step outside of the role play just for a second then I'll jump back in, but I just want to point out that. Uh, my interlocutor just said a lot of stuff there and there's a lot of shiny little things to chase but my interest really is in the claim of the the um that we would be better off without religion mm-hmm. and so i'm going to i'm going to kind of refocus the conversation and with this next question um so i, I kind of want to get back to this idea that we'd be further along in our knowledge cycle and i'm willing to entertain the possibility that that could be the case if religion wasn't around but i'm wondering do you think that humans could find themselves in a knowledge cycle that's moving too fast that it could be too fast for us to actually manage and and result in some negative consequences yes So,
1: first of all, I don't think that there's some ideal place where we're supposed to be. Evolutionarily speaking, we are fresh out of the trees. Uh, And so, it's amazing that we're walking upright and eating with forks.
2: Uh, uh, (laughs) I'm chatting. (laughs)
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, we could say that uh, what we should be doing is, you know, we, sh- we should be way down the road by now. We ought to be able to move things with our minds. Uh, and maybe that is something that will happen to us a thousand years from now. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I don't think there's a should involved in evolution saying that we should be there now. I think that we could say we could be closer to a place there now if we hadn't been distracted by other things.
2: No, no. the the thing that I'm wondering about, though, is that let's say that religion wasn't around and humans were just zipping through their knowledge cycle. Like we were learning more and more things and coming up with all these new inventions, and there wasn't some sort of throttle to make sure we weren't actually racing towards a cliff. Is it conceivable that religion could be a valuable throttle for us so that it's actually... Retarding or slowing down the pace just a tad so that there really is a value to religion, even though it may not be true and it's actually impeding the knowledge cycle, maybe, maybe uh, slowing down the pace of things a little bit could actually be advantageous in the long run. What do you think about that? I think it's possible. I'm, I'm not
1: uh, dogmatic. Um, as, as dogmatic as to say that there isn't some... Benefit to having bad ideas mm. but but i would I would still say that overall religion's a bad idea I think that um, I think that slavery's a bad idea, but i I could probably come up with some benefits to society in a grand god view evolutionary way why it was good to do it i i don't i don't tend to engage in that sort of sophistry i don't i don't think it's useful. Uh, But, yeah, you you could theoretically say that, you know, beating your kids and abusing your wife uh, will lead to some greater good. Uh, But I think that's an abstraction. Uh, I don't think that we should fear the future because we might be learning too many things too fast. And I think in the grand scheme of things, we have seen evidence of the harm that not learning can do. And we don't have as many examples of the evidence of harm that learning things can do. Mm. So I'm, I'm willing to err on the side of having society learn and grow rather than retarding their function because we think that keeping them in a childlike state is better.
2: Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate exploring that with you.
1: Great. <laughs> Great. Hey, can I have all three gears? Because I don't like having incomplete
2: sets. <laughs> yeah, for people that don't know what that means, I have a little, like, mesh, a gear-shaped wheel. It's segmented into three sections, and uh, they're little stress ball type of things. If you watch some of my recent videos, you'll notice it. And, uh, yes, one will be in the mail to each of you. Which color would you like? I'd like all three. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs>
1: if Kelsey, if i look at a thing that i know it comes in three parts i only have one of them i would think it's broken ah it's busted.
2: <laughs> it's busted well i'll tell you what when we're done here give me a shipping address and i'll make sure i get something out to both of you excellent <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome. All right. Well. Well. Yeah. I think that that does it for our show. I I enjoyed the the conversation. Hopefully, you, you had a good uh, time on your end there, Anthony. We will definitely invite you back
1: sometime in the fall. I want to say because uh, summer's probably filling up, and I I don't know exactly the direction things are going to go for this show. There there might be a little bit of a hiatus coming up, but if. Uh, Assuming that we're still going strong in the fall, I'd love to have you back uh, then either in the fall or the winter.
2: I think it would be fun and it might even be valuable to bring somebody else along who's doing this besides myself. Um, there's lots of other practitioners who are not only recording videos but doing it online and doing it, uh, yeah, over social media or whatever with family and friends and maybe another voice to bring along.
1: With Honestly, I would love to just see you take another crack at Dale. <laughs>
2: so just for, <laughs> just for selfish reasons. Uh, that's that's a show that I'm willing to pay to see. <laughs> Wonderful. That reminds me, there is there are a couple venues where people can go to have their have people kick the tires on their views. Uh, there's a Discord server for street epistemology. There is uh, there's a variety of different Facebook groups. If you're on Facebook, there's Twitter, Reddit, etc. There are places where you can go to not only learn this but have people explore your claim with you.
1: Yeah, Great. sounds
2: like sounds like fun. Um, Thank you so yep. much. Thank you, for the,
1: thank you for tolerating all of the pushback and um, engaging in uh, interesting thought experiments. Uh, it's, it's been a great process, and uh, we do hope to have you back uh, again. Dale, remind us of who we have next week.
0: Um, so, so, yeah, so next week, um, we're having uh, Dr. Craig Keener to discuss... Uh, That's
1: Dr. Craig Keener. People,
0: go ahead, I'm sorry. Just in in case case you didn't hear it, yeah. Um, yeah, Greg
1: freaking Keener.
0: All right, go ahead, you can finish here. Okay, Uh, (laughs) and yeah, so he'll be discussing the historicity of Axe with us. Uh, He was kind enough to to do me the favor to agree to come on. Uh, Also, look out for Shroud Wars round four. Um, So, Anthony, uh, you're interested in the... um, in my reasons for the Shroud, I do have multiple shows on the Shroud and and right now I'm bringing on uh, pro and Shroud skeptic experts to debate various issues about the Shroud. So yeah, I can send you some links to that as well. But uh, yeah, if you'd be interested in that.
2: Thank you. I'd love to listen to it.
0: Awesome. All right. So yeah, that should be everything. Hopefully the audience enjoyed the show and have a great week, everybody.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure.
0: Bye-bye, y'all.